If you could ask Christ one question, one straight up question, and get one straight up answer, what would you ask him? Why mosquitoes? That's how you're going to spend your question. Okay. God bless you. Just one question. You're going to ask him a question. He's not going to give you a parable that you're going to spend 30 years scratching your head. What do you really mean? But you're going to ask him a single question that you long to know the answer to. And he's going to give you a straight answer. What would you ask him? Why would that question reveal more about you than about him? Or what would that question reveal? For many of us, something that's longing or hurting or aching or an injustice or something unfair, something we cannot get over, get past. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to see a man who had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to ask Christ a question We're continuing our walk to Jerusalem, our walk that changed the world, and we look today at Jesus' walk to Jericho. We began last week as leading up to Easter with looking at a pilgrimage, a walk that Christ began the moment he was born, but now eminently the days less than a week where he will walk up to Passover. He will celebrate this great last supper, as we'll call it, with his 11 closest friends. Judas will defect. And in that discourse with his 11 friends, he will map out the strategy for what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to them. He will then be arrested. He'll spend Gethsemane. He'll be arrested. He'll be bounced around, tried unfairly and illegally. He'll be condemned to death. He'll be crucified. He'll be killed. He'll give up his life willingly. He'll die. He'll be buried to prove his physical death. And three days later, he'll be resurrected. And then we will have Easter or Resurrection Day. And as we continue that walk to Jerusalem, that walk that changed the world, we pause today and look to the walk to Jericho. In Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. The feature of the blind Bartimaeus, this story is included in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark, of course, is our oldest gospel. It is the shortest gospel. And the gospel record, the gospel writer Mark includes some information that is not included in the other two gospels. In John chapter 9 and 10, we have a different blind man, an unnamed blind man that John records, a man who's a, more, no more than an object lesson, really. But this man is named, this man has interaction with Jesus. Jericho was built by Herod the Great at this time. There are actually two Jerichos. 
There was an ancient Jericho that was essentially a ruin that was somewhat abandoned about a mile away from the Jericho that Jesus walks in this story. When you go to Israel, you will only get to drive by Jericho. You won't get to go in and spend much time there. There was a day we got to go into Jericho. It's very dicey to get into Jericho these days. Herod was a megalomaniac of a builder. He built all over Israel. He built from the top of Masada. He had a palace here in Jericho. He even built his own mountain known as the Herodium. It's a massive structure that you will go and see. You actually climb up this mountain and go inside to see how he lived. He was an incredible builder, incredible mind. No one ever liked Herod the Great. And this is where Christ is making part of his journey on the road to Jericho. It's about 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. We've started at the north of the country. We're going up to Jerusalem, even though we're going down south. We're going up to Jerusalem because you always go up to worship. Now, for careful Bible readers, if you were to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, and compare this story, there are some differences. And that leads some, although trivial, leads some to doubt, doubt the Bible, to dispute the Bible record, to say the Bible is inconsistent. But if you're in a community group, we have a set of questions that will lead you into some of that to, to look at those. And I would encourage you to make a chart of the three stories. Mark is the only one who names him Bartimaeus, but we do find some differences. Matthew talks about two blind men. Matthew also indicates Jesus touched their eyes. Mark doesn't record that, nor does Luke. Uh, Luke uh, says they're on their way to Jericho when he encounters them. But if you look at verse 46, when they came to Jericho as he was leaving. So how do you reconcile or harmonize those two phrases? Well, if we have two cities, the ancient, neglected, abandoned Jericho, and the new Jericho, they're certain he's leaving one going to the other, could be a good explanation. There are many good explanations. Uh, Mark is the only one, again, who names him Bartimaeus and indicates it was outside of the city. So I think you can harmonize those accounts and answer the objector. Maybe you're a skeptic when you read the Bible. Well, the Bible's not true. It contradicts itself. Um, we often say that without ever really studying it for more than about one second. And if you spend a little time comparing and contrasting, you can make a sense. It won't solve all the questions. But it will solve a lot of the objections that people have when they rush by some of these differences. Uh, a little more trivia, Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. Bar meaning son. Bar mitzvah is the son of the law, the son of the commandment. Bat for a woman, bat mitzvah, the, she becomes a daughter of the law, a woman of the law, a woman of the commandment. So we have this bar word, but it's Aramaic, not Hebrew. So it's a little bit unusual that we're recorded here an Aramaic surname, Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, because the Hebrew word would be Ben. If you're Benjamin, you're Ben-Ami. You're the son of the strength of my right hand is what the phrase probably means. So for the Hebrew, Ben is the suffix for, the prefix for son, not Bar. Bar would be in modern Hebrew. It's not in biblical Hebrew. D.M. and Hebert writes, the remembrance of his name may mean that he was a well-known member of the early church. And I would say it probably very likely means he's a well-known individual. The fact that Mark records it and the fact as we look at the stories from other details that come to light, this man was very well-known. We not only see him being outspoken here, more than likely his character may have been an outspoken individual. But nevertheless, he's a blind man sitting by the road. Very likely Bartimaeus came to that same spot every day. 
Not unlike uh, parts of Nashville where we have homeless people, parts around the ancient world where beggars line up, you have your spot and you've marked out that territory and people respect that and that's where Bartimaeus would sit every single day. But now is a very opportune time to beg because we're going up for Passover. Remember the pious, godly Jew, when they went to, it was a pilgrimage to go up to Passover. It was a huge celebration. It was like our Christmas times 10. People took off from work and vocation, and they traveled up to Jerusalem to go worship Yahweh Elohim, to remember, commemorate the Passover, that God with his 10 plagues guided out Israel from slavery and captivity in Egypt. He superintended that, and they were a people group, a nation. They're protected by God, and they're going up to celebrate this, and they're going to have the sacrificial lambs and eat. It's a festival. It's a party. It's not some church religious service. This is a celebration for the Jew. And so families and entourages and tribes would travel up to Jerusalem to worship. So Jericho is on a main road, let's say. You have to go by Jericho. And in doing so, it's going to be what? Crowded with people, swollen with traffic, all the merchants love it because they're going to be selling and people spending the night and have foodstuffs and water and all the things they're going to need for their journey. And so it's a very good time to be on the road begging. Think of our uh, Salvation Army buckets and that um, delightful bell that they ring and all the controversy that creates in our lovely country today. But what's, what's the idea behind it? You're about to go and spend a lot of money in these stores uh, for Christmas. And so they're not only playing on your heart, but in a good way, let's say, if you're going to spend a lot of money, why don't you be a little bit generous with those who have real needs? And so they ring the bell and annoy you and me, and we throw a little change, and they raise a lot of money in those red buckets at Christmas time. We have beggars on the side of the road as you're going up to the Passover festival, up to the celebration. It's a spirit of generosity. It's a time to give. And many of these pious, good Jews would be uh, throwing some change Bartimaeus' way. Bartimaeus had heard rumors, just like anyone that lived in the first century during Christ's life. We pride ourselves with social media and the, fat, the speed with which information can be transmitted around the globe. Make no mistake, in the ancient world, if something miraculous happened, rumors spread quickly. If a man was healed, a blind person got their sight, if someone who was sick was cured, if someone was raised from the dead, if loaves were multiplied, thousands of people heard very quickly. The Decapolis would be like, it's the 10 palaces, the 10 cities, but think of it as the greater metropolitan area. Think of it as middle Tennessee. If something happened, that word of mouth traveled like technology does today almost. It would not take very long a time if something occurred in the Sea of Galilee for people way north to hear those stories because it was uncommon. It was news, and people like to share news and spectacular information. Bartimaeus had heard rumors of what this Jesus had done. This is a once-in-Bartimaeus lifetime opportunity when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. This rumored miracle worker, and he shouts out, Son of David! Have mercy on me. Those traveling with Jesus along the swollen streets and crowds are annoyed. The text says they sternly tell him, be quiet. Hush. We're going to Passover. But 
It's not unlike Mark chapter 10 when the children were annoying the disciples. And Jesus says what? In the King James, I love, love it. Suffer the children not. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. The disciples and those with him are annoyed. Bartimaeus kept crying out all the more, the text says, Son of David, have mercy on me. We have two instances where he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the kept crying out all the more indicates repetition. So he's probably saying it again and again and again. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy. Son of David please have mercy on me. Son of David, stop, hush. Only verses 49 and 50 in Mark's record do we get these details, and Jesus stopped. Unlike the crowd, Jesus stopped. Unlike the disciples who said, hush, Jesus stopped. Now, you've got to have a little sanctified imagination here. A lot of people are moving in the swollen alleys. If it's 50 or 1,000, just use your imagination to get a glimpse of it. Jesus now stops. This is a disruption in traffic. There are beggars, more than likely, lined all the way up and down this road, this section of Jericho. And Christ stops, and you can see the domino effect. So a crowd is now gathered, even if it's just his 11 or 12 people. I would say he probably had 50 or 60 with him at minimum, and they stop. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Literally, it's essentially one word in Greek, call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. No longer do they silence him. Their attitude now changes 180 degrees. You've got to see a little humor here. They're sternly warning him when Jesus stops. Oh, come on, he wants you. One minute you're hated and loathed and shut up. Hey, he's calling you. Come up here. That's fickle, aren't we all? I love the way the Nazby renters it. Take courage. Stand up. Some of your Bibles do also a good job. Cheer up. Get on your feet. It's a little loose, but it's good. Others, take heart. Get up. I was studying this this past week. That phrase caught my attention, and it was not a hard study. There are seven times that phrase occurs in the New Testament. One time here, it's said by people, the group that says, take courage, he's calling you. The other six times, it comes from Christ's lips. So, of course, for any Bible student, that's like red meat. So I spent a lot of time looking at what I want to share with you. In Mark chapter 9, the paralytic is brought before Christ. He's lying on the pallet, remember? And Jesus forgives his sins, which causes a huge dust-up. And then he goes on to heal him to prove his point. But he tells that paralytic, take courage. In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, we have a woman who's had a 12-year hemorrhage. 12 years she's been sick and diseased and in a malaise and illness. 12 years. And she holds out hope. If she just touch his cloak, she'll be healed. And she tracks him down and touches him. And the moment she touches him, she knows she's healed. And he also knows power went out of him. Remember the story? And she backs off and she's afraid. Who touched me? She's busted. And he tells that woman, take courage. In Matthew 14 and in Mark 6, the disciples are on the stormy sea of Galilee. 
They've been laboring. They're about to drown. They're afraid. They're exhausted. And in the far distance, they see what they think is a ghost on the Sea of Galilee coming toward them. And they're terrified. And as the ghost gets closer, it's not a ghost after all. It's Jesus walking on the water. And he tells them, take courage. In John 16, 33, the upper room discourse, Judas has betrayed Christ. He's moved out. He's talking to his 11 closest friends. The last time he's going to be with them, he's talking to them. And he tells them, in this world, you will have tribulation. Take courage. Take courage. It's not all going to be roses, gentlemen, after I'm gone. It's going to be hard. Little do they know how hard. Take courage. And the last time, interestingly, is found in Acts 23. Well, if you know your Bible, wait a minute. I said six of them, Jesus spoke. One, the seventh is spoke by this group. So how is Jesus talking in Acts? He's gone. He's off the scene. Yes and no. In Acts 23, they're trying to kill Paul. He's fearful for his life. And the text says cryptically, Jesus stood beside him. I love it. Boom, Jesus shows up. And he tells them, essentially, just as you have testified in Jerusalem, so will you in Rome take courage. In pivotal moments of people's lives, when they encounter the Christ, when they're afraid, when they're terrified, when things aren't working, when they're sick, when they're infirmed, when they're blind, take courage. Take courage. Most of you know, and I don't mean to tire of telling you or bore you, but I've been through four significant back surgeries, one very major back surgery in the four and at some of my darkest, darkest times when I was isolated, alone, in pain, when nothing could help, one of my dear friends, Dave Gibson, who's been a pastor and missionary for many years, a great, great friend of mine, would tell me, Michael, take courage. Take courage. Be of good courage. He's a few years older than me, but he always calls me young man. Take courage, young man. Why does that mean so much to me? Take courage. How much more when the Savior tells you, take courage. Take courage. What are you facing right now? Do you have courage? This isn't just positive mental attitude nonsense. It's being courageous. Standing tall, standing straight, embracing the future, smiling at it, knowing it's going to be difficult. But you take courage because he overcame the world. In this life, you will have tribulation. I guarantee it, Jesus told the 11. Oh, joy. Take courage. Not if, when. Take courage. Much is made of Bartimaeus throwing aside his cloak Some of it may be a bit over the top. Some think it's a pallet of a kind. Again, if you go to Israel or the Middle East or impoverished cultures, you'll see people on the roadside kind of park with their stuff. And so we'll envision he's got this cloak that's his stuff. Invariably, maybe that's where when people threw the shekels or the coins at him, that's where he would collect them. After all, he's blind, so he can't see it. He can hear it and feel it when it hits the ground. He throws it aside and he moves. Verse 51, and answering him, 
Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, Jesus, on the road. In verses 51 and 52, Christ does not immediately heal Bartimaeus. He asks this cryptic question, what do you want me to do for you? And as soon as he answers the question, Roboni, I want to regain my sight, immediately the man is given his sight. It is notable that in Mark's record, as in Luke's and and, uh, uh, Matthew's, there is no spitting on the ground. There's no mud made like in John 9. There's no action of go do this or go do that. There's no line of questioning back and forth. It's a simple question, what do you want me to do for you? Don't you think Christ knew when he saw a blind beggar on the road yelling at him, son of David, have mercy on me? Don't you think he knew? Of course he knew. Why the question? What's he asking him? Christ's answer reveals what he's asking. Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, boom, he sees. There's no exercise of faith. There's no going and obeying and doing something. There's no show yourself to the priest with an unclean leper. Your sight, you have it. Go. Faith, very, very careful here. Faith is not the cause of our salvation. Faith is the means of our salvation. It's a fine distinction, but it's an important one. Faith is not the cause because he believed he was healed. Faith was the means of his healing. It's the little engine that could. That's faith in faith. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Many Christians live under the improper idea that if I have enough faith, exercise your faith as though you could build a bigger faith muscle than someone else. Sure, some people have the gift of faith, but does that mean they believe harder, better, more? No. It means they're gifted with a trust in God that some of us lack. And that's why the take courage is such an important part of this equation. To have faith sometimes is to be courageous. How often must I illustrate it? Faith is confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. That's faith. You're trusting in the person and work of Christ. You're not exercising more faith. And this is the heresy of the so-called health and wealth gospel. When they teach, you must believe harder. You must believe more. And if the miracle doesn't come true, you didn't believe enough. Let me say it as kindly as I can say, that's heresy. It's heresy. Because you and I know a lot of people who believe very diligently and things don't work out. Experience isn't the requirement for it, but if it was an if-then, according to the way they teach it, it would seem to be that way. What are we believing? We're believing that Jesus is capable of something, and we're asking him for help. It's not the exercise of our faith. It's the avenue. It's the means by which. It's the trusting in Christ to do for us what we cannot do for yourself. I am incompetent here, incapable here, impotent here. I can't get new eyes. I need you to do it for me. Your faith has made you well. Because he believed in Christ's ability, it was not faith in faith. 
The journey to Jerusalem is ending. Christ will walk the road to Jerusalem, the holy city. He'll celebrate Passover with his friends. He'll be handed over, crucified, and so forth. And on the way, Bartimaeus, once in a lifetime, hears the Jesus of Nazareth walking by. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. When Christ says your faith has made you well, that phrase made you well, it's the same words we use for salvation. It's the word sozo in Greek. It can be used to be saved. It can use to be delivered. It can use, in this case, to be made well. It's a play on words. Sometimes you're delivered from a storm or you're delivered from sea, as Paul was. But here, it's a play on words. Your faith has made you well. Christ isn't talking about the eyesight he just got. Christ is telling him that your faith has saved you. Remember, the physical miracle that we ask and pray for is a reflection of the spiritual condition of man. We're blind, not just physically, spiritually. We're deaf, not just physically, spiritually. We have cancer, not just physically, spiritually. We have ALS, not just physically, spiritually. Every disability, every disease we have is a reflection of our spiritual condition with God. We're sick, diseased, and dying individuals. And our our human condition is a constant reminder of that. Otherwise, we'd all have perfect health, perfect cholesterol, full head of hair, tan without sun, lean, tall, whatever you want. We're not. We're in a fallen condition, a fallen bodies, in a fallen context. Oh boy. So we live by faith, not by experience. Only three times in the gospel do we have, in Mark's gospel, son of David. Twice here from Bartimaeus. Son of David is a distinctly messianic reference. Again, in the community group, you'll see a study on this, but we go back to 2 Samuel, for example. When the son of David is a title that becomes unique to the one who will be on the eternal throne. That there will not lack a king on the throne of David. There's a promise that God made that there will be a king for eternality, for eternity, in perpetuity. Of course, David, the son of Jesse, becomes the king, and then his son Solomon, and then all goes to pot. And we have the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, wars within these kingdoms, civil wars with their own people groups that continues on throughout Israel's history. But they're waiting for a king, and they're going to Passover, a lot of them with the notion that here's the religious social solution to our problem. Jesus is going to announce himself. People right now are announcing themselves as president. They're going to come, and we're all going to wait and hear the next couple weeks. Who's going to run for president? Oh, boy, let's get ready. They're waiting for Christ to be king. They're looking forward to him going up to Jerusalem to proclaim himself Messiah and set the religious political thing in order and right the unright, make just the unjust, help the poor, help the infirmed, do right by Israel. That's what they think he's going to do. And this one man, blind on the side of the road, calls him by the Messianic title. Don't miss it, Mark, under the Spirit's inspiration, goes out of his way to name him Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, who calls out to the son of David. It's not a coincidence. It's meant to make a point. He calls him Rabboni, not rabbi, not teacher, Rabboni. It's one thing to call, uh, let's say, a professor prof. But it's another to call him or her doctor so-and-so, 
or chairperson so-and-so or president of a university. When he calls him Rabboni, he's calling him a master. Not just a Kung Fu Zen master. He's calling him the master. He calls him twice son of David, strongly suggesting he knows this is Messiah, believing that. And then he calls him Rabboni, master. And then what happens after his question is answered? He follows him. Bartimaeus didn't miss a thing. I would argue Bartimaeus, based on the rumor and stories he had heard, believed this was Messiah. That's why he called him such. And when Bartimaeus talks to him and calls him Rabboni, he's already called him Master. He knows who he is. He believes. And Christ affirms that belief and says, your faith has made you well. And he regains his sight, and then his action is to follow him. When we study miracles in the Bible, it still goes on today. Agnostics, those who don't believe the Bible, people that say we're misquoting Jesus, and on and on the literature, and people. I marvel at the amount of energy that people will make a living dissing the Bible. Isn't it a great country? I just marvel at it. Why don't you say what you believe in life instead of throwing something else under the bus, for goodness sakes? Well, that's what you don't do. You know, bless your heart, we say in the South. Bless your heart. Go ahead. You think the Bible can withstand the Bart Ehrmans of the world? Absolutely. Why attack the Scripture? Eh, They've got lots of reasons. Scripture is the living Word of God. When When we read a story of a miracle and we dissect the miracle, that couldn't happen. He couldn't turn water into wine. That breaks biology. He couldn't raise a dead man. That that breaks the laws of physics and nature and biology. He couldn't create the world in six literal days. That breaks all the laws of physics and all that we know about the speed. And we're constantly assailing the scripture because our human perspective and the little box of knowledge that we have that we can repeat and measure, we say, oh, that's right, that's universal. What if God's outside all that and he made it all? The scripture never tells us how he created the world in six days, nor does it tell us how he created this man's new sight. Which, by the way, the word regained here does not necessarily mean he was once seeing and then blind. That's possible. But the word doesn't have to stress that. John 9, we know he's congenitally blind, a different man, but it doesn't mean that he had his sight at one point. It just means he wants to see. If Messiah can create new eyes, I think he can handle water and wine. I think he can walk on water. The point of the miracles are not to analyze or phenomenologically explain away the miracle. That's why it's super above nature, supernatural, because there is no natural explanation. That's the point. If you can explain it naturally, then just don't worry about it. Just don't believe him. That's fine. Bless you. Go for it. But the bigger miracle, the bigger supernatural act is that he can make dead men and women alive. And if you're entrusting your eternal soul to the word of Christ, I think it would be incumbent to analyze what he does in Scripture as miraculous and take it by faith that he in fact did it. Or your faith is more foolish than whether or not he can walk on water or turn water into wine. Why do we attack all this? Why do we disbelieve it? Are we that much more knowledgeable than the living word of God? Go for it, baby. Don't confuse the miracle with what he's doing. He's showing himself to be God. 
the miracle is a simple illustration. We've talked a lot about miracles from this pulpit, Lloyd, Bill, myself, and some people have great angst about miracles. I, I love the discussion. I think it's fun. Um, but the expectation that because God doesn't perform miracles, he's not God still, misses a great deal more than the miracle stories. And so I've said many times, the problem with a miracle is you're going to need another one. If the one question you were going to ask Jesus is something that's going to be miraculous if it happens, mind you, I've got that list too. If he did them, I would want another one. As I've said many times, Lazarus got a bum deal. He has to die again. In my book, that stinks. He was on his way to heaven. I've, been that, I've done that dead thing once. I don't want to do it again. You see, we're going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. Not the other way around, guys. We're not going to the grave. You're in the grave. And you're moving from the land of the dying to the land of the living when you trust Christ and you live forever with him. Not the other way around. Oh, we cling so tenaciously. And as I've preached to myself and hopefully encouraged you over the years, ask God not merely for a miracle, ask him for an immovable faith. Because Christ told the 11, tribulations and trials will come. Peter writes to the dispersed Jews, tribulations and difficulties are coming. It's going to be part of the fabric of our life. Does that mean we become Eeyore theologically? No. It means we stand with courage. Take courage because you overcame the world. Live by faith in spite of the experience. Live by faith in spite of what the world says about you and me. Live by faith in spite of who's in the White House. Live by faith in spite of the wars around the world. Live by faith in spite of having cancer. Live by faith in spite of being in a divorce. Live by faith, fill in the blank. Take courage. No matter what your experience tries to tell you. Lastly, why blindness? Why blindness? Blindness is a miracle reserved for the Messiah. No one else can do this but Messiah, which adds to the texture of the story when he calls him messianically, son of David, have mercy on me, because that blind beggar knows a lot more than most of us. He knows that only Messiah can rectify his blindness. Listen to a few passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 35.5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah 42.16, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In past they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plain. These are the things I will do and I will not leave them undone. 29.18, on that day the deaf will hear words of the book and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The miracle of blindness turned to sight was reserved for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is why in John 9's record of an unnamed blind man is one of my top five favorite stories in Scripture, John 9 and 10. And the disciples are coming into the city, and they see a blind man, and the text goes out of its way to say, a man born blind. Now, some of you have... Uh, blind men and women in your family, children, and you know a congenitally blind person has a little different facial formation. If you're born blind, then a person that becomes blind later in life. So he's born blind, and he always begged in the same place. The disciples ask a great question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? 
That's a causal question. Why is he blind? The rabbis believed you could sin in utero. They also believed that if the parents sinned, it could affect the child of that relationship. How often has that been taught in cultures around the world? That a deformed or disabled child is because of the parent's sin. The disciples asked the question we all ask. Why is this person blind? Why are they disabled? Did he sin in utero or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, what? Neither. But that the glory of God might be revealed. Now, if you read that chapter on your own this week, you'll see the man really has nothing to do with anything until after he's healed. He's an object lesson. Jesus spits, put mud in his eyes, sends him off, washes his eyes, and he sees. He comes back, and it's, it's a comedy. There's so much humor in the story. And they say, is this the man born blind? And he keeps saying, I'm the one, I'm the one. But they don't believe him. So they bring his parents in. And they say, is this your son? Paraphrasing the story. And they say, this is our son, but as to how he now sees it, we don't know, because they don't want to get in trouble with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they keep grilling him. And his, his intellect just goes exponentially with the argument with the, with the uh, Pharisees. And there, there's a great exchange in there where he's told them several times. And he asks them again. He goes, essentially, do you too want to become his disciples? Is that why you keep asking me these questions? You want to believe too? And they throw him out of the synagogue. He upbraids them at one point. Here's an amazing thing. I received my sight, and you don't know how. You don't know where he's from. Why are they so worked up about it? Because only Messiah can do that miracle. That's why they're so lathered up about it. Because if, in fact, that man was congenitally blind, and if, in fact, he got eyes, that was a creative miracle that only Messiah could do. And the scribes and Pharisees were all wrong, and they have to turn over their admission and say, this is indeed Messiah. That's why they, see, it's, it's the oldest trick in the book. You attack the individual, not the issue. I'm blind. It was me. I can see. You don't have a clue how it happened. All I know is I can see now. You idiots. That's in the Greek. <laughs> don't you get it? What do you know? You're a sinner. I'll toss you out. Politics is old business, men and women. It's old business. I think Bartimaeus knew that Jesus was Messiah. I think that's why he calls him son of David. And that's probably, humanly speaking, why the story gets the attention. God knew it was going to happen. He's the always intentional, deliberate Jesus. It's not, oh, by the way, let me do this on the way. He was planning to do it all along. But from our human view, Mark, the, the Spirit of God, gives us these delicious insights. Son of Timaeus, son of David, Messiah. Rabboni, the master. He believed in him. And he says, your faith has made you well. Translated, paraphrased, you're saved. You're saved. You've gone from physical blindness to physical sight. Yeah, that's not important. You've gone from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. That's the issue. It's the last healing in the record of Mark. Why? He's showing one more time before Calvary, I'm Messiah. I've done everything to prove to you. If you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. Because I've shown you I have power over death. I have power over health. I have power over deafness. 
I have power to multiply loaves of bread and fish. I have power to walk on water. I have power to calm storms. I can turn water into wine. If that ain't enough, I'll give some new eyes to show you. Only the Messiah can do these things. These aren't tricks. These are works of God. What are you calling out for him to do? And if he answers it, what difference does this make in your life? If it's just another miracle, what an exhaustive relationship. For this man, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Well, he got his sight back. But the answer to his question made him follow the Savior. That's my point. Will the answer to your prayer help you follow your Savior faithfully? Or will you just have another shopping list of things that you and I want him to do? I mean, I've got him too. I ask God to do all kinds of things for me in my prayers. I want him to help this and this and this. I want him to bless this and this and this and this. I mean, I would love like nobody to avoid more surgery. I would love to never have them cut on my back ever again. I would love all kinds of things that make my life better. But do any of those requests and answers help me follow him more faithfully? Maybe. My questions aren't yours. How do you live through the divorce? The discouraging part of one of your children. Your husband, your wife. The injustices. The inequities of life. Your depression, your discouragement. Your lack of joy, your apathy. My career didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. This wasn't what I hoped this stage of life. I've lost everything. What am I going to do? We're so obsessed with the here and now. Do you think if we could lift our eyes a little bit to the there and then, some of this would lose its grip on our emotions? Some would lose the stuff that we're so obsessed about would sort of find a perspective? Ask him not merely for a miracle, but ask him for an immovable faith. And by all means, from the words of our Savior, take courage. Take courage. Believing in him not your experience. Believing in him, not the way you think the story should end. Be of good courage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us, that you care about us more than we comprehend. Nothing we could ever do would change the way you love us. And nothing we could ever do would make you love us more. Thank you for your spirit who indwells your word which teaches, the combination of which changes our lives. May we be a little more like Christ than we were yesterday. In the powerful, matchless, risen name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a courageous week.